BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Harry and Meghan released the first half of their new documentary series. And Will and Kate cross the pond for the Earthshot Prize. And Megan's Archetypes podcast wraps up with some very different guests. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And hello to Doria, who we hear from for the first time in the new Netflix documentary series, Harry and Megan. That's right. Doria is among dozens of friends, family members, and experts who appear in the first three episodes of the new series. We also meet a family member many of us knew very little or even nothing about, and we see plenty of footage of family members who are no longer with us, like Princess Diana. Yes, the series is directed by Liz Garbus, whose expansive resume includes the hit documentary series I'll Be Gone in the Dark, as well as Britney versus Spears. And she even directed an episode of A Handmaid's Tale. She is quite the stellar director to be on board for this project. So there's loads and loads and loads here, Kristen. What was jumping out to you? Oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. I, I don't even know where to begin other than the beginning. So (laughs) at the top of the show, Harry and Meghan talk about how they actually met. And Harry says that he saw a photo of Meghan on Instagram, and it was her with a Snapchat filter that made her look like a dog. And he's like, oh, that girl who looks like a dog, she's for me. And he arranged an introduction through mutual friends because he just was smitten with a Megan in that Snapchat filter photo. (laughs) I love that Megan says he was introduced to her as Prince Has. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. I loved as well. Did you see the, um, so their relationship was about to become public. They were told that it was going to be in a newspaper. And so they had like one night of freedom and they went to a Halloween party and there were all these incredible photos of them in their fancy dress partying with Princess Eugenie um, and Jack Brooks Bank, now her husband, um, and looking like they're just having an amazing time, basically incredibly candid pictures. There's so many incredibly candid pictures and little snippets of behind the scenes video. Oh my gosh, so much. There's even snippets of audio when they are walking into the garden at night and uh, on the night that Harry's about to propose to Megan. So we actually hear Megan, oh my gosh, what's happening? What's happening? And then we see photos of them. We see photos on their second date. They were so smitten on their second date that they had to document how they felt and they took several selfies. We see um, all sorts of you know, quiet moments that just like the rest of us, you know, you know, we're on a date with somebody we're really into, we're out to dinner with friends. And and they took all those selfies, as well as I have to point out text messages, we actually see text messages between the two of them, and other family members appear on screen. And I have to talk about who one of those family members is, Megan's dad. Let's talk about Megan's dad. (laughs) 
So she says that she was always a daddy's girl. She actually um, paints him in quite a kind of sympathetic and positive light during her early life. So it mainly deals with the period leading up to his kind of big betrayal where he sold uh, himself to the paparazzi. And then that incident itself, it doesn't really get into the more recent years yet because the whole of the first part, the first three episodes of this series, stops uh, just after the wedding in 2018. But yeah, she says, you know, she was around his house all the time. Um, Her parents got divorced. He lived alone then because his adult children were old enough that they'd moved out. And she shares some quite candid footage from her childhood of him kind of like, I think, going fishing with her and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So we get a real like intimate portrait of her family life growing up. We also have to talk about the family member who we mostly have not known about. This blew my mind. I I, I just was blown away. So we all know about... Megan's older half-sister, Samantha Markle, who is 17 years her senior, Megan makes very clear. She puts a line in the sand here and says very clearly, I do not know that woman. We've met a couple of times. The last time I saw her before I met Harry was literally like 10 years before. I, I don't know her. However, I do know her biological daughter. Uh, her biological daughter was not raised by Samantha. Um, and Yet she and Megan got to know each other, and Megan always saw her as kind of a younger sister. Her name is Ashley. They were very close, and um, Ashley is on screen talking about their relationship in this, and I was just blown away. I'm like, Ashley? Who's Ashley? <laughs> and Ashley, uh, well, yeah, so she was adopted, but I think at age seven, they said, by her grandparents. So she's uh, she went to live with her grandparents, um, but she did then for you know go back to having a relationship with Samantha again in later life um, but then didn't get an invite to the wedding because it was felt that it would be very difficult to explain why she was there and Samantha wasn't um, so, and yeah she actually got quite emotional during the interview that she gave I think and it's really yeah. just so fascinating that while all of this stuff has been going on in public with Samantha trashing Megan um, and all the fallout with all the kind of Markle family Megan's just had this quiet friendship with Samantha's own daughter going in the background. Yes. And Megan obviously was forlorn about that too. We can see the emotion as she tells the story of, I really wanted her to be at the wedding and then being told by the firm she cannot be there and how she and Harry did a conference call where they had to break the news to her. Actually, when we said we wanted you at our wedding, we weren't lying, but we can't have you there. Um, and so there was a lot of pain on all sides about how the firm at times would step in and at other times not step in. And uh, when I say that, I refer to, of course, how the firm dealt with racism. They all seem to think, oh, gosh, every woman who marries into this family just you know, they have to deal with the scrutiny of the press and why should Megan be given special treatment? And Harry says point blank, she is not going through what other women have gone through. She's going through way more because there's also the element of race here. And then the documentary from that point forward does not shy away from race, from racism, from the institution, the monarchy, uh, with their relationship with racism, with their pivotal role in the slave trade, with the firm's role in pillaging and profiting off of the colonies, and how they have left millions and millions of brown people around the world to 
live with less because they have taken the riches away from those places. And so this is dealt with in the documentary predominantly through experts, including Afua Hirsch, the uh, author and journalist who kind of delve back into it. And like you say, they do actually not just talk about British Empire, but link the royal family themselves historically, hundreds of years ago, um, to slavery and mention specifically Queen Elizabeth I. Obviously, not to be confused with the recent Queen Elizabeth, who, who we uh, lost in September. Um, but that is the closest that Harry and Meghan have come to really getting fully stuck into that subject um, in the time since they left the royal family. Obviously, it's not words coming out of their own mouths. They stuck stuck to their own story about their own lives. Um, but obviously, they are producers of this show. Like, it's, it's you know, this is an Archwell Productions project. So it kind of is all coming from them. Yeah, I, I will give Harry credit. He does talk about his own implicit bias, his own um, struggles to get it right. He talks frankly about that Nazi uniform he wore to that one yeah. costume party way back in the day and how remorseful he feels about that and how he tried to make good, how he met with Holocaust survivors and rabbis and tried his best to listen and to learn and vowed to do better going forward. And um, I, I just really have to commend him for that. I don't know if every person in this world is comfortable talking about their implicit bias. We all have it. I have it. You have it. We all do. You know, we all know the story of, you know, one fish says to the other um, something about water and the other fish is like, what's water? And the yeah, conclusion right. is they're swimming in it. And that's what our world is. We're swimming in implicit bias and racism every single day because that's the way our world is. And Harry's owning up to it. He's like, I'm not immune to that. I have that too. And I think the world would be a better place and the monarchy would be a better place if more members of the firm would actually own up to that. And he actually said, so he's, he says, first of all, is probably worth getting out there he said he was so ashamed of himself after he was pictured on the front page of the sun so this was actually a not particularly nicely named fancy dress party it was like a colonials and natives theme mm-hmm. um this was way back when in 2005 and it was a party in the cotswolds which is like a very leafy lovely part of the west country in england um it's near where charles's home is um high grove and so they were going to this party lots of rich privileged white people basically getting dressed up in in costumes um so harry rented a nazi uniform william was with him in the shop but obviously did not wear such a controversial outfit somebody took a picture and gave it to the sun it wound up on the front page but one thing that's really interesting is harry said you know in this family we're often part of the problem um and he's yeah he says there's a lot of unconscious bias so he is kind of calling out the rest of the family there and he says that he he obviously talks about this incident being part of his journey but he also significantly talks about his time in the armed forces um being part of his journey too and saying that that service as you know and he cites his two tours on the front line in afghanistan where he was in war as being part of what kind of you know, blew this unconscious bias off him. But he does also say it's an ongoing process. You know, the job isn't done. It's not something where it's just over. It's a day-by-day ongoing process to lose that bias. Yes. Um, And he also says he's very, very proud of his mixed-race children. He is proud of them, and um, I get the impression will do his best to raise them to be more conscious of all of these issues than... Uh, he was growing up, or Megan, for that matter. Um, it is brought up in the documentary that 
Doria tried so hard to shelter Megan from topics like racism that she didn't really talk as much as she wished she would have. Going back in time, she would have talked earlier with Megan, not just about identity, but about racism, anti-Black racism. And um, so th- they're very frank about all of these subjects. And, and I really, really appreciate that they did that. Yeah, she uh, Megan actually talks about the first time she ever heard the N-word. And it's actually a story she has touched on before, but she gives slightly more kind of candid detail this time and says that, you know, she was with Doria in a parking lot and they were pulling out and someone shouted, you know, another driver, I think it was, shouted it out the window. Um, and she kind of describes in quite sort of hair-raising detail how, like, her mother just was in total silence. Um, and they, yeah, they just basically drove home and silenced Dory, obviously, was probably very, very shocked, probably, I would imagine, very angry with this woman for saying it, but perhaps made a decision mm-hmm. in her mind that she didn't want to have that conversation with Megan and uh, wanted to protect rather than kind of inform which is such Mm -hmm. a difficult decision to make as a parent i mean it's really hard when uh people say things around around your child that are hard Mm -hmm. to explain and that are really difficult subjects especially if you feel that they're not quite at at a point to understand that yet yeah and megan herself says because she is such a fair-skinned black woman, because a lot of people don't realize at first glance that she is black, that she didn't confront those same things her mom did. And um, how disorienting it can be to be a mixed-race person in a world that has so much anti-black racism. She she talks a lot about that and her uh, sense of identity. But she also talks about how, you know, getting older, she wants to confront these things more head on, how important it is to acknowledge racism. And of course, this is all interspersed with them, Harry and Meghan, appearing at the NAACP Awards on stage and receiving an award for trying their best to make the world a better place to, for the next generation, uh, open up conversations that maybe they weren't having when they were younger. Now, there was a lot of conflict in the build-up to the release of this show, um, including you know debates about the trailer using stock imagery that wasn't actually of Harry and Meghan and that kind of thing. And now we've had a, we've started to get into some backlash after its release as well, um, including you know briefings from palace sources to news organisations in Britain saying that the royals were never approached and given a right to reply. Um, the, there is like a, a shot right at the very beginning of the first episode, which says that the royal family were given an opportunity to comment and didn't take it um now at newsweek we've been told i've been told that actually uh, netflix did approach the palace and um, that they approached communications teams for king charles iii and also prince william um and you know i'm i'm reliably informed that there are receipts to demonstrate that so we're mm. already starting to get into this kind of post-publication warfare and battles but with you know people getting upset about things and actually part one did have some quite subtle digs here and there you know that stuff about unconscious bias i'm sure would have gone down badly at the palace but needless to say it's not got the fireworks and the bombshells that i think we're probably going to get in part two not least of all because we haven't reached that stage in the timeline yet Yes, and I know that I am bracing for that. I think the world is bracing for that. Is there going to be, you know, another moment 
like in the Oprah interview where Megan names names, where Harry names names, where we have a moment like, no, it was Kate who made me cry, not the other way around. Are we going to have moments like that? Because they did not hold back talking about Megan's family in the first mm. three episodes. I, I just feel like out of fairness, we have to get to Harry's family in the next set of episodes for it to be even coverage, right? Yeah, and I, I would 100% think we are going to. I mean, if you think back to the Oprah interview, you might remember they spoke about that Megan Kate cry story as being a big turning point and actually the, the tour of Australia and the South Pacific that came a month previous to that uh, to that story, that being the moment when everything changed. Um, so that's October 2018, and we just haven't reached that stage in the timeline in these first three episodes of the documentary. So I think there are still going to be fireworks, there's still going to be... Um, conversations about, uh, yeah, I mean, the relationship with William and Kate that have been saved over for that part two, which, by the way, drops the morning before William and Kate's, you know, big Christmas event, which is the carol service, um, Mm -hmm. the Christmas carol service, and the King and Camilla are going to be there too. So whatever is said, if it's really dramatic and difficult for the palace, they're going to be out there that night uh, in front of the cameras and everybody's going to be studying their faces for any kind of reaction. Oof. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, I am looking forward to the next several episodes. We'll obviously talk about those right here on the Royal Report. So be sure to tune in for that. But now we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, a reminder to rate us and review us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. When we're back, Will and Kate take on Boston for the Earthshot Prize. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back with a deep dive into Will and Kate's visit to Boston, where they were on official business for the Earthshot Prize. The Earthshot Prize reminder is William's flagship contribution to the fight against climate change. It awards one million pounds to each of five winners to fund projects aimed at saving the planet. So this was like one of the biggest kind of self-generated events for William and Kate of the whole year. Obviously, we had the Platinum Jubilee. That was massive. We had, you know, the very tragic death of Queen Elizabeth II. That was very somber. We had their tour of the Caribbean. That was massive. But none of those things were kind of <laughs> generated by them. So the tour of the Caribbean was part of the Jubilee. You know, it was a, it was a tour and celebration of the Queen's reign. Whereas this, this is William's biggest biggest project um so it was a massive event a massive date for them and it got off to a bit of a tricky start it absolutely did just as their tour in america was starting scandal struck as will's godmother lady susan hussey had to step down as a quote-unquote lady of the household i love that title (laughs) after repeatedly questioning a black charity boss over where she was from no where are you really from no really where are you from despite being told that she was british and i'm just gonna say here as a woman of color who has to answer this question every day this is not 
a question of curiosity, as her defenders have said. Lady Susan Hussey has had people defending her saying like, what's so wrong with being curious? Well, that is otherizing. That is treating people of color as if they're foreigners, as if they haven't been in the UK for over a thousand years, which they have been. Um, I mean, this woman was born in Britain. Yes, she was born in Britain, but to treat her as if she was an alien, uh, an interloper, an outsider, it's just, that's not curiosity, that's otherizing people. Yeah, I mean, Ngozi Fanani, who, oh, she, her charity is called Sister Space, um, and she put a whole transcript of the conversation on Instagram. And um, it was, yeah, like you, exactly as you've been describing and, uh, you know, asking where are your people from? Where in Africa are you from? Um, and I have to say, some people have been coming out trying to defend Lady Susan Hussey, but nobody, to my knowledge, has actually challenged or disputed the content of that transcript. So there's people coming yeah. out saying Susan Hussey was 83. It's unfair on her. She's having a terrible time because of what happened. Um, like you say, people have been saying it was all, you know, none of it was meant in a hostile way. But okay, fine. Say that if you want to. But nobody has challenged that those comments were made. And it's it, there's a real sense of entitlement that she had the right to find out, you know, complex aspects of another person's ancestry, heritage, backstory, rather mm-hmm. than simply accepting the identity that Ngozi Fulani has based on her experience of being a human being on planet Earth. You know, she grew up in Britain her whole life. That is her experience of being a human being on planet Earth. And um, Lady Susan Hussey felt that, she, that there was some kind of essential truth that was not being communicated or that was being hidden that she had the right to get to yeah and i mean for anybody who is saying no no it's not a big deal how often do white people get asked this i get asked this almost every day jack how many people will come up to you every day and say, no, where are you really from? <laughs> no one ever asks where I'm from. They don't even ask, you know, in a kind of like basic way where I'm from. Um, so yeah, no, white people don't get asked that. And it, it, not only do white people not get asked that, but she was not like in the supermarket. She was not in the local pub. She was not at the cash. She was in Buckingham Palace for the first time, you know, at a state reception, you know, big reception, a big kind of state room, high ceilings, you know, the works. Um, and she said she was, you know, feeling a little bit of what, you know, we might call imposter syndrome anyway, you know, not not familiar surroundings. Um, and then obviously to have Lady Susan Hussey come up and do this is obviously going to magnify that by a hundred times and really like cement that feeling that she was somewhere that she didn't belong. And one thing that I found slightly heartbreaking about her account was she said the whole purpose of the event, which was a domestic violence event, and she, her charity supports domestic abuse victims, she said the whole point of the of the event was to celebrate her, to celebrate her organization and all the other organizations that were there. And it wound up with her just feeling like she didn't belong. Now, we have to point out this is not the only thing overshadowing William and Kate's visit to Boston. Uh, at the beginning of their tour, when they were at Boston City Hall, they were meeting with Mayor Michelle Wu. Meanwhile, outside, dignitaries gathered at Speaker's Corner, and uh, there, the words of Mariana Whitehammond, Boston's Chief of Environment, Energy, and Open Space, uh, shook a lot of people. She said, on this day, I invite us all to consider the legacy of colonialism and racism. So, um, yeah, that legacy of colonialism and racism and how that intersects with the plight of the environment. So, William and Kate are there for environmental reasons, but yeah, colonialism and racism, 
they are a big part of why the environment is the way it is right now. It's a particularly awkward conversation for Prince William because you might remember he was caught up in a racism scandal. Uh, actually, November last year, it was a pretty much, you know, bang on. A, a year, year ago, yeah. Yeah, a year <laughs> on from a big backlash against Prince William after he linked the uh, environmental impact of the human population in Africa to climate change, which is like a... You know, it's a long-standing debate where a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, conservationist groups feel that that is racist, that that is blaming the people of Africa when actually, you know, the population in Africa is much more sparse than it is in, you know, New York where you live, Kristen, or London where I live, or, you know, mm -hmm. California, or, you know, these big Western cities and towns where those people live in a concentrated place. Um, so, yeah, it's very close to home for, uh, for William yes. and Kate. Yes. Um, one other thing that uh, maybe did not make William and Kate happy was on their first night in America, they joined basketball fans at the TD Garden to watch the Boston Celtics beat the Miami Heat. But when the Jumbotron went and showcased the couple at the game, the audience began uh, booing and chanting USA, USA, USA. Um, not a very uh, warm welcome to the Waleses. It's really difficult for William as well because he clearly has made so much out of sport. You know, he's been taking George to sporting events. He's been doing so much of it, but it's starting to get really difficult for him. I suppose if you've got thousands of people in a stadium, like even if a significant percentage of them like you, the chances are that there's going to be a contingency of people who don't is so high that if this starts to become a regular thing, like how's he going to take Prince George to a sporting event where you might have to sit and watch his dad get booed? Um, it's <laughs> it's, look, it's looking terrible. like they might, yeah, they might have to actually start to have a serious conversation about whether William can keep going to some of these things. Um, you know, that event, I'm sure... Will and Kate enjoyed them, the basketball game, but it's not like a fundamentally necessary stop on the tour. You know, it wasn't it wasn't fundamental to to the Earthshot Prize, which is what the visit was all about. And then also, um, the players and manager were asked about what it was like to perform in front of royalty in a press conference afterwards, and their um, responses were less than effusive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There they were comments were. along Just the like lines. Just like any other game, I believe one of them said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like any other game. And uh, and also, not to mention, you know, asked about the royal family, who Jesus, Mary and Joseph. That's the only royal family I know of. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, you really did get the feeling that this was not something that the Boston Celtics had asked for. Um, and therefore, maybe imposing it on them was not perhaps the smartest idea. Yeah. I will say, though, the Earthshot Prizes themselves, I really have to commend the great work of the five honorees and this event. Um, I, I'm so much in favor of this event. I'm so much in favor of them getting money to uh, further implement these outstanding projects. I'm, I'm just going to name a few of them. Five recipients uh, included Notpla, which is a plastic packaging alternative that's made from seaweed. So it's not just biodegradable, but also edible. Oh my gosh, how amazing is that? All that plastic should be made out of seaweed. It is just unbelievable. There's also this carbon storage system that takes excess carbon dioxide from the air and sequesters it forever these are the words of the organization uh by turning it into rocks isn't that unbelievable 
That's incredibly cool. And I have to say, if we could get on top of this plastic packaging thing, it would be such a benefit to society oh. because I still get so much of it. And especially if you do an, I don't know if it's like this in America, if you do an online shop where you have it delivered, they just put plastic packaging on everything. Like oh, it's, a bit, it's everywhere. It's a bit easier in the supermarket when you can kind of like try to pick your veg that aren't plastically wrapped. But when you order it, it's like they just stick a plastic bag over any meat you order. They just stick a plastic bag over that individual piece of packaging um, as if it didn't yeah. already have enough plastic to begin with so it's incredibly encouraging and there is a real chance that yeah I mean they could help provide that much needed funding to help some really important projects that are going to help the planet for the future so it, it, you know I'm in, in favour of the Earthshore Prize I think it's a, a massively beneficial um, ceremony and yeah I think William and Kate will be a little disappointed that it had that really tough start and then actually <laughs> even the uh, the day before the ceremony itself um, was when the trailer for Harry and Meghan's Netflix show dropped so then that also swung the news agenda off in a totally different direction for them um, but you know the Earthshot Prize is still giving those money to back those good causes and it will come back next year um, and mm-hmm. you know I think it, this is something they do that does make a real difference. It does. And, you know, there were good headlines around the event itself, partly because it had so much star power. People like Billie Eilish and Annie Lennox were performing. Uh, Kate, of course, was dressed to the nines and maybe doing a little damage control at the same time. <laughs> you know how we talked uh, in our last episode about that $17,000 brooch that she's been wearing recently. This time around, she wore a rented dress, which is a lot less expensive and also a lot more earth-friendly as far as, you know, not just buying and buying and buying more clothes off the rack or more and more jewels, but buying the use of something and then returning that item so somebody else can use it afterwards. So uh, she looked great in her green sheath style off the shoulder green gown. Um, And she also wore a piece of statement jewelry not worn since the death of Princess Diana in 1997. She wore Queen Mary's emerald and diamond choker. I thought she looked terrific. She looked fantastic. Yeah, it was a really great look. And actually, you know, there were some, once it got going, once they got into the meat of what the tour was about, there was also a great reception for them in Boston. There were some big crowds outside. Like you say, there were some fantastic names at the ceremony. Obviously, a green carpet instead of a red carpet, as there was last <laughs> year. But some, yeah, some huge stars on the green carpet. Um, you know, the, David Beckham was involved, obviously, uh, showbiz royalty. Um, so it was it was a fantastic event once it got going. It was just a very tricky way into it for them. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I I, I hope they continue these awards for as long as I'm alive. I think they're really important. I think they showcase great work. I think they fund great work. But yeah, um, I do think they need to start thinking about how they also talk about their own role in the environment, how colonialism has caused a lot of these world problems and to take ownership of things. We're going to take one more quick break, but before we do, a reminder to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston, and Kristen is at Kristen Meinzer. We always have royal updates there, as well as my latest stories for Newsweek. And when we are back, a quick goodbye to the Archetypes podcast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey 
Hi, everyone. We're back with one last quick story. The week before the Sussexes released the first half of their Netflix series, Megan released the final episode of her Spotify podcast, Archetypes. And at Prince Harry's suggestion, uh, Megan actually broadened the guests on the show this time to include three men. Andy Cohen, Trevor Noah, and Judd Apatow. Um, so she said that if she, well, Harry told her rather that if she was going to really open up the conversation and move the dial and push things forward, then she would need to cast her net slightly wider and bring a different opinion to the subject. Um, and I, I think it worked well. Yeah, up until now, she has really given the mic to women, a wide variety of women from all walks of life, from activists to actors to athletes and so on, uh, talking about the stereotypes and labels that hold women back. But, you know, men, they also are a big part of the problem and ideally the solution. And she wanted to make them part of the conversation as well. So I thought it was a, a great idea. Hats off, Prince Harry, for that suggestion. I really liked the kind of slightly edgy back and forth as well between Megan and Andy Cohen, who is obviously the producer behind Real Housewives. And it turns out that Megan had actually met him before a couple of times and even wanted to be cast in one of his shows. And you can just kind of watch him like implode on himself as he realized that this was the, as he described it, like the biggest mistake that the franchise had made. Um, and uh, he, you know, he uh, obviously... Uh, but he wanted to make a strong defense of the TV shows. And uh, Megan pointed out as well that they have given roles to hundreds of women in the franchises all around the world. Yes, yes, yes. Now, this final episode, I'm sure, has a lot of people wondering, is Archetypes over now? But it might not be. At the close of that episode, Megan said, we're working on other ways to keep the conversation going, but just know that as we close out this season of Archetypes that I thank you. Thank you for listening and learning with me. This has been liberating and healing, and it's been fun. Jack, to you, does that sound like a second season is on its way, or is that just a polite way to end the series? So the name Archetypes is really specific and requires a kind of format that must be tied around these these words and or labels that are used to hold women back. My feeling is that there will probably be another Spotify podcast, but I don't think there'll be an Archetype season two. Um, not least of all, I think uh, Rebecca Sananez, who, uh, who was the kind of brains behind the concept, has um, part company with Archwell. Um, and so she, I think, I think Megan will come back with a kind of Megan podcast season two, but it just won't be an archetype season two. It'll probably be built around another concept or another theme. But they've ended on a high because uh, <laughs> Archetypes has won the People's Choice Awards um, on Tuesday. Yes. yes, a couple of days before the Netflix show dropped. Yes. But you know what? I personally am still holding out for a season two of Archetypes and I want that episode dedicated to the word princess. I talked about this before. <laughs> I wanted that. I'm just going to mention it again. I, that I want too. that princess episode. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? If you look at the last two episodes of season one, they kind of ditched the concept of tying it around a particular archetype. So the second to last episode was based around the human being, as in, you know, you're, it, it, instead of looking at a label that was used to hold women back, it looked at moving past the archetypes to being you know, to engaging with people as humans. Um, and then the final episode as well was it broke the format too. Um, so I kind of feel like Megan might be done with the specific 
approach that where you pick one label. I would love to see them do the princess label. I think that is a fantastic idea and they 100% should have done it. I kind of feel, though, that Megan's slightly done with the format. Oh, fine. Megan, go on. <laughs> do other things if you want to. We're still going to keep our ears and eyes open for whatever that is, even if it's not archetypes. I guess that's it for this episode of the Royal Report, Jack. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all. <laughs>